those of you down front. Good morning to those of you way up in the cheap seats. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Glad to have you here. Listen, if we can make a connection today, uh, that would be really, really excellent. Online, you got to be a little bit more creative, sort of chat in the chat feature. Our host is there with you. Uh, drop us an email during the week afterwards. Some of our pastoral team and others will be down here. Some of our prayer team members uh, will be down front here as well this morning. Check out anybody in the atrium. Don't be in a hurry to get out of here today. One service, we can just hang out a little bit. Uh, grateful to be with you. One other invitation that I will extend. Uh, this morning, as soon as we're done, yeah, it might be 20, 20, 30, 25 minutes after we're done, we're going to have a membership uh, class today. Class is maybe not the right word. It's an it's a information session about membership. Now, I want to catch something that uh, Pastor Rita said earlier. She was talking about membership, and when she was talking about membership as we see it in Ephesians, that's that sense of belonging to the body of Christ, to the church universal of which anybody who's a follower of Jesus, you're part uh, of that wider family. But in 2023, in churches like ours, we still have something called participating membership or formal membership. And now I recognize that not everybody sees this as a biblical concept. And it is a little bit of a, uh, an implied thing in the New Testament. What you see in the New Testament is individuals being very committed to a specific local body. They didn't necessarily have to have uh, paper and constitutions and bylaws and all of that sort of thing. But there is clearly this, this sense of commitment. So in our day, we do have something called formal membership, membership in a church like this one. And it's really a way for anybody who wants to um, state it in this manner, uh, I'm in, I'm committed to this body. And beyond that, there is something about the Societies Act that governs us as a charitable society that says members need to have some say in direction and vision and how things are allocated and who the leaders are. So it's, it's an important concept here. And if you have any interest at all in being one of our participating members, we have somewhere in the 600 or so uh, participating members, and we'd love to welcome some of you into membership as well. So if you'd like to consider that today, join us uh, about 11.30 or so. There's still room for a few more. And then this coming week on Wednesday night, there's an online version as well. So if you just want to sit at your kitchen table in your sweatpants and <laughs> Check out membership. You can do that online. Go to our website to register. Even now, if you want to register for the one uh, that we're doing today. Uh, some of you who've been a part of our congregation for a while know what this is. Some of you who've been part of our church just maybe in the last two or three years have never seen these. Anybody remember these? Yeah, these are our offering bags. Um, these have been something that we have used for years to receive our offerings. So I just want to mention that uh, our offerings are giving the, the generosity of our people funds everything. We do not exist at a church as a church without uh, you, many of us, contributing to what we do around here. We are 100% uh, funded on uh, the generosity of our people. So if you've yet to consider this as part of your commitment to this church, if you are uh, committed here, please consider being uh, partners with us in this way through giving. If you've never given before, maybe consider doing that for the first time, set up reoccurring giving, that sort of thing. I bring this up here just to let you know that we're talking about whether or not it's time to start passing again. And it's not really out of a sense of, we gotta get this in people's faces a little bit. It's a little bit more uh, because uh, uh, this is for a lot of us a important moment in a worship gathering when we 
actually have this moment of saying yes to Jesus, yes to generosity, yes to uh, giving to the ministry uh, of Sherwood Park Alliance or other charities. So we're talking about this a little bit. We've been uh, having some conversations with uh, sister churches and kind of asking around. And it's really, really interesting. I I asked about uh, maybe eight or 10 different colleagues around the province this week. What are you doing? What are you doing? And a handful of them have started to pass again and they have reported, yeah, people are liking it again. Others are saying, eh, we're not quite so sure. I'm not sure in the way the world has changed how many of us are ready to touch something that's been touched by dozens of people. I can't really figure out how to mount a hand sanitizer device on this deal, uh, but we're working on it. So I'm just mentioning this. If you have feedback for me, if you want to weigh into the conversation a little bit, let her fly a little bit, but we're just talking about it and we'll see about whether or not we uh, bring those back uh, in the near future. All right. Let me tell you a little bit of my story. Uh, Those of you who know my story know that I grew up in an environment a lot like this one. I've been around Christianity, faith, Christian people, churches, pretty much my whole life long. This is a very familiar, very comfortable environment for me. I made what we sometimes call a profession of faith at 11 years old. And the way it happened was like this. I I had spent a week Uh, maybe five days or so at a little camp, a Christian camp not far from us. And at that camp, at the last night of camp, the camp pastor, my counselor, uh, there was a lot of kind of activity around this idea that, hey kids, uh, why don't you think about accepting Jesus into your heart and make him your savior and Lord. They were challenging us to make a faith declaration. And when we say, you know, accepting Jesus or coming to faith, that's just our way of describing kind of what it means to begin to orient our lives around Jesus. And I felt this compulsion, I felt a little bit of conviction that this is maybe something I should do, but I didn't. I I kinda, there's a couple different reasons, I won't get into that, but I went home without having, you know, done that, uh, but it stuck with me. It continued to sort of stir in me, and so on the night I got home from camp, I, by myself, in my bedroom, knelt beside my bed. I'm not being melodramatic. I really did. At 11 years old, I knelt beside my bed, and I prayed this prayer of commitment in which I acknowledged, you know, God, I'm a sinful kid, and I need forgiveness, and I'm going to now make Jesus Christ my, my Savior, my Lord. I believe in him. I trust him. And that was sort of the beginning of my spiritual journey, if you will. The cool thing was I went out and I had the, the courage to tell my mom I had done this and she was sitting in the orange chair, it was the 70s, uh, in that corner and I went over there and I talked with her and she blessed me, she prayed for me, she wept a little bit. It was a cool moment for me uh, and my mom and that was the day that all of this began. That was August 1st. 1977. I remember it very specifically. Now, just as important, maybe more significant, was a later experience, about 17 years old. I was about to start uh, grade 12, and that's when I think I was cognitively better able to appreciate the basis of my faith. And that's the day or the time or that sort of window of time when I determined to put my life on a certain path, really, in a lot of ways, the path I'm still on. 
And this later experience is just as meaningful, maybe even more so, but it was less about a moment. It was more about this growing awareness that there is a God revealed in Jesus Christ and my primary goal is to become more like him. Now let me just pause for a second and see if you're tracking with me. What I've just described are two different ways that people come to faith. Some of us kind of morph or evolve into faith. We start out unsure, we're uninformed perhaps, and then maybe we begin a conscious investigation. Maybe it's in community, maybe in a place like this, or maybe on our own, but then we sort of wake up over time and we realize at some point, yeah, I I think I believe this. I'm a follower of Jesus. People like this don't necessarily point to a moment when they become Christ followers. They just know that I was not, and then now I am. But others know the moment. They kind of point to a precise, you know, tangible, identifiable moment, maybe where they prayed a prayer with someone or they prayed a prayer like I did as a kid on their own. And that's just a a time when they put a stake in the ground and they say, yeah, I'm in with Jesus. Now, this way of helping people embrace faith was a staple, a bread and butter for the great evangelists of the 20th century. Especially in Pentecostal circles, especially in the southern U.S., altar calls became a very common practice among evangelical ministries and churches. An altar call, as we maybe refer to it, is an invitation in a setting like this one to come to the front at the close of the service. It's a way to respond to the gospel. We sometimes say to walk the aisle, we'll use that term, and come forward and receive Christ. Now, not that many churches are doing altar calls anymore. And there's a few reasons for that. One is some of the critics say, well, there's really no compelling biblical evidence for altar calls. Some people say, well, they can be a little manipulative. People can get kind of swept up in the emotion of the moment. And some, and this may be the most compelling argument, sometimes, you know, a moment like this kind of reduces faith to a transactional moment where we pray a prayer in order to get to heaven when we die. When in reality, faith is about lordship. It's about followership, it's about dying to self and identifying with Jesus as his follower and pursuing a life of personal transformation and identification with Jesus. It's so much more than a a simple little prayer. But throughout the 1900s, many, many people came to faith at revival meetings with fiery communicators like Dwight Moody and Billy Sunday, and they would invite uh, participants to come forward to the front of the preaching hall, and nobody did this more effectively than Billy Graham, right? Most of us know Billy Graham. Uh, He had, for decades, these massive stadium crusades, and they would always end the whole experience by singing a song. The choir would sing, and Billy Graham would invite people to come forward. know the song? Just as I am. Yeah, a lot of you know that song, Just As I Am. It's a simple, slow-moving hymn which became the signature for Graham. The, the song goes like this in the first verse, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come, come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. 
And these crusades um, would happen with hundreds of people coming forward and then trained counselors would be down there to meet with those folks. And all of this would take some time. Uh, It would take several minutes and the choir would just keep singing just as I am over and over again. And once in a while, Billy Graham would hold up his hand and stop the choir and he would begin to speak one more time. And he used to say stuff like this. He would say, come now as the choir sings very dramatically. Your friends, your relatives, they'll wait for you. If you came in a bus, they'll wait for you. We just want to give you some literature to take home. We want to pray for you and send you on your way. And, And thousands of people responded in this way. Some of you came to faith like this. Here's the deal. I do not wish to be manipulative this morning. I don't wish to reduce faith in Christ to a single transactional moment, but at the end of this message, I'm going to do an altar call. I'm gonna invite you to come forward and meet me or some of our prayer team members down here, and if you wish to, to respond to the moment by receiving Jesus or just praying with someone to put a little stake in the ground. I just wanna tell you right up front where this is going. So be ready for that, be thinking a little bit about that. We're in a series called I Am. We're talking about the seven statements Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. They're mostly metaphors, which means they're attempts as metaphors, they're attempts to describe what in many ways is almost indescribable. And Jesus does this because he desperately wants us to understand who he is and what he's all about. And to help us with these, he uses illustrations. He uses these metaphors. For example, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am sustenance. I am everything. I am everything you need. And later on in his uh, gospel, John, uh, he says things like, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. Last weekend, we looked at the line where Jesus says, I am the gate, which took us to John chapter 10. And that's where we're gonna be this morning as we look at the next statement that's on our calendar, and that is, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me read this section of John chapter 10. This will be the basis for everything that I'm going to share this morning. Here we go. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's a demon-possessed and raving mad person. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. After all, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 
So much there, so much to say and so little time, including a snippet from what we just read that I didn't anticipate striking me as profoundly as it did. One of my sources placed a lot of emphasis on the two words that we see in the middle of verse 15, two words, just as, just as. Here it is, verse 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now those two words are are sticking with me. They're messing with me kind of in a good way. And it's not because they're also part of the song just as I am. Uh, By the way, the writer of that old hymn, Charlotte Elliott, had convinced herself that her physical disabilities had left her nothing to offer God at her midlife point. And so at the, the, as the story goes, at some point she went and, and, and was talking to a pastor and she was talking about whether or not, you know, she had truly given her heart to Christ and this question came back to her and a few days later she came back and she wanted to talk with him about how to embrace Jesus fully, but she didn't know how. And so this pastor supposedly said to her, just come to him as you are, just as you are. But for me, what struck me in this verse is the, the assertion of Jesus, and think about this, just as he and the Father are one, just as Father and Son know each other intimately, you and I can experience this also. That's mind-blowing. So more about this as we uh, participate here together. Let me pray for just a second. I'm feeling kind of that that burden to do that for a moment here. So Heavenly Father, we now just open ourselves up to your spirit and to your scriptures and pray that over these next few minutes that you would have your way within all of us and that if there's something you wanna do in our hearts, something you wanna convict us of, uh, help us to be ready for that and may we respond in a way that pleases you. In your name I pray, amen. Something I hope uh, happens as a result of you experiencing uh, the teaching ministry that we have and I have here is that you pick up little Bible study tips along the way. I I try to do that. I try to insert these little, hey, this is kind of how you can study the scriptures on your own. So occasionally uh, you might pick something up here that's helpful. Uh, The scriptures can be a lot to handle. They're complicated, they're complex. And so one of the little tips that I haven't talked about for a little while is just the reminder that it's important to pay attention to genre. There's lots of different biblical genres, different types of literature, and each genre should be looked at uniquely. And we need to kind of use these ideas to help us interpret and apply these scriptures. Now, when the genre you're looking at includes metaphor and parables and illustrations, one little Bible study tip I'll give you is to ask questions of the text. Some people call this inductive Bible study where they just ask questions of the text. And that's kind of what I'm going to do here this morning. And I'm just going to ask one question. And it's the question, what is it that makes Jesus good? Why do we call him good? Why do we call him a good shepherd? What makes Jesus good is a good place to start. Now, right off the bat, there's a problem with the word good because it's not really that inspiring of a word. And in our time, the word really doesn't carry a lot of weight or meaning. Good shepherd, good anything can sound kind of average. Here's what I mean by that. You know, you ask somebody how they're doing. Maybe you did this on the way in today. How you doing? They'll probably say, man, good. It really doesn't mean anything, right? It's just, it's just sort of a greeting. 
Uh, on Friday, I was talking to my son. He and his wife spent three days this week in Banff. And so I said to him at one point, they're foodie people kind of thing. I said, hey, did you have you know, any good meals or anything like that? Any, what was your dining experiences like? And he said, meh, you know, it's pretty good. Just kind of non-committal. That's how we talk on this day. That's how we kind of greet each other. Good doesn't really mean great. We like great, but good doesn't usually mean great. If you ask somebody about a dinner experience or a date or something like that, and they say, oh, it's great, that will draw you in and make you ask more questions. We like good, but we love great. So when John quotes Jesus as saying, I'm the good shepherd, Jesus is not saying, I'm good, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay, I'm vanilla, I'm beige, I'm decent, I'm wholesome. I mean, he is those things. But when you read this, I I, I wanna help you try to feel this as something so much greater. On the day Jesus makes this claim, He's in the presence of false shepherds. I talked last week about the context of John 10. He's speaking to people who are probably like shepherds in the community. They're the community leaders, but they're not so great shepherds. And what he's saying is, I'm a true shepherd. I'm a genuine shepherd in a world filled with bad shepherds. In a world filled with bad shepherds, Jesus stands alone as good. So for the last few minutes we have together, all I'm gonna do is keep answering the question, what makes Jesus a good shepherd? What makes Jesus good? This is gonna be real simple. It's almost like a one-point sermon. Jesus helps us answer the question then by giving us a couple of examples of his goodness. Evidence of his goodness is on display in verses 11 and 14. Let me show you verse 11 one more time. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, here it is, lays down his life for the sheep. Seems simple enough, especially if you grew up around Christianity like I did, but there's actually a little bit of a problem with this verse, and that is, historically speaking, good shepherds don't lay down their lives for the sheep. Here's what I mean. If you're a shepherd and you lay your life down for your sheep, that kind of makes you a bad shepherd or a dead shepherd. Shepherds exist to care for the sheep. And sure, on rare occasions, history shows that occasionally shepherds die in the line of duty, but they don't do it willingly. No shepherd takes the job thinking that this is what's going to be required of them, that they literally die for a lamb. Further, if a shepherd loses his life, This puts the rest of the flock in danger. Without a shepherd, sheep will scatter. They will starve because they need, they're dependent on shepherds to protect them and lead them to food and water. Without a shepherd, sheep are easy pickings for predators. So the best way for a shepherd to protect his sheep is to stay alive and do his job. But in Jesus, we have a shepherd who does the opposite. And by the way, our shepherd doesn't die. Our good shepherd doesn't die because someone sneaks up on him and surprises him. Jesus dies proactively. And now I'm thinking of the part of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, this is verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is my choice. This is what makes Jesus good. Jesus dies a sacrificial death for good reason for you. And for me, 
because we're his. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's verse 11. Now this is verse 14 again. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. If you caught last weekend's message, we were in this very same chapter and in the earlier portions of the chapter where Jesus says he's not just a good shepherd, but he's the gate who calls his sheep by name, the gate or gatekeeper who calls his sheep out. They come, they follow him because they know his voice. All of this is his way of saying, I die because they're my sheep. That's why Jesus dies, because they're his, you're his. Now, intuitively, at some level, we understand this. We understand the concept of dying for our own. I'm married to Corrine, she's right over here, and we have two children. They both have significant others. And if any of them came up against something that would threaten them, be it illness or some other threat, if it were within my capacity or ability to step in front of that and take that threat from them, I would absolutely do that even if it meant that I was gonna die. I'm not, again, being melodramatic, I would absolutely do that. I'm 56 years old, I've had a reasonably good run, I don't wanna die, but if my death meant my wife or my kids could continue living, I would absolutely take that deal. Now, I would like to see Tuscany. Um, <laughs> I would like to break 85 for 18 holes. Those are a couple of things I'd like to do, but would I die for my family? Yes, I would, absolutely would. Would I give my life for your family? Being honest here, possibly, probably not. But for my family, yes, absolutely. But that's Jesus. He dies for his own. Now, why Jesus lays down his life and the implications of his sacrifice are the subject of countless numbers of descriptions and theological discussion, none of which will possibly answer all the questions you probably have about the complexity of all that's going on here. We call this atonement. This is what we're talking about here. All of what I'm talking about right now, theologians, pastors, all that, we refer to this as atonement, and there's dozens of atonement theories, all of which are these constructs to try to reason this out and explain what's going on when Jesus goes to the cross. I am not gonna do a dive into atonement theory, but maybe this much will help for today. The reason Jesus dies for his sheep is because they're his sheep. Why do we say there were his own? Where does this idea of ownership come from? Well, you might recall verse 12 where there's language there about ownership. Um, that's the part where in the text we read earlier, there's hired hands reference there. It's ownership language. And throughout John's gospel, there's more and more references to ownership and it references Jesus choosing us as his kids. You see this in chapter 15 where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father when speaking of his sheep. He says, 
Yours they were, and now you gave them to me. There's, there's ownership language throughout the Gospel of John. And all of this is summed up in the concepts of Jesus choosing us because God gave us to him, which means effectively we've been purchased, we've been bought. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So there's a reason Jesus dies. And it relates to what I said earlier. Nobody dies willingly for another without a good reason. I would die for my family because they're my family. Jesus dies for his kids because they're your, his kids. And the reason Jesus dies is that his his kids are in danger. His sheep are in danger. The actions of Jesus result in a divine exchange I'm still, after all of these years, still trying to wrap my mind around. But somehow, by his death, the price is paid and we're his. The price includes death, the details of which we remembered and celebrated through communion just a few minutes ago. His blood shed, his body pierced. This is the price that Jesus pays for us with his life. And so... This is why he's a good shepherd. This is why John, the gospel writer, says at the very beginning of his gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So before we move to a time of response, I want to go back just for a couple of more moments for a little bit more reflection on my comment from earlier about those two words, just as. In context, again, here it is in verse 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason those two words, just as, are reverberating in my brain is they're speaking about God's gift of intimacy and relationship. Sometimes, often, when people like me are trying to describe what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus, we use relationship language. We say things like this, you're invited to a personal relationship with Jesus, which sounds great, but admittedly, you know, we can't hang out with Jesus in the flesh and have a meal with him and watch the Oilers with him, as cool as that would be. So again, just like how difficult it is to describe all that's going on with the atonement, it's elusive to define and describe what it means when we say that we have a relationship with Jesus. But there is something compelling in these words, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The same kind of intimacy that Jesus enjoys with the Father and the Father enjoys with the Son, this is the kind of relationship that is offered to you. It's it's oneness. It's oneness that doesn't remove the distinction of each person in the Godhead, but it is an invitation to a kind of connection that human words can't possibly fully express. There is a connection within the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, where the gospel tells us that it is actually like the Father is performing the Son's work. They're one and the same. And Jesus is telling us that something just like that, just as that, is available to you and to me. We can experience that. Mind blown, right? So what makes Jesus a good shepherd? Well, 
in addition to what we already described, it's this offer of the gift of intimacy and relationship. And this is what allows Jesus to say in John 15, this is not on the screen, this will be in the last message of the series. Just as the Father has loved me, so I have also loved you now, remain in my love. That's how much you're loved by Jesus and that's why he's a good shepherd. That's why he's a great shepherd. So before I wrap this up, uh, I'd like to suggest that there's some implications of this. I'm gonna give you three. I'm gonna sneak three points in somewhere here. So here we go. Uh, what makes Jesus a good shepherd? First of all, Jesus doesn't merely save us from something, but to someone. Doesn't just save us from something, but to someone. We've been given something that is infinitely valuable, beyond comprehension. Our good shepherd forgives sins, and for that I'm eternally grateful, but that's not the end. The end is God himself. Intimacy and connection. I love how the apostle Peter describes this in his letter, 1 Peter, for this is 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Real simple little phrase. Why did he do it? To bring you to God, to make that connection. The implication is that act saves us to someone. He's given us the greatest something, that is someone who is God himself, two. And this is a little clunky. I couldn't narrow this down, but just track with me here. Second implication is that because it's like the intimacy and the relationship of the son and the father, we're not talking about something which only takes place in our minds intellectually, but faith in Christ is also experiential and emotional. Again, listen to Peter, who describes the kind of intimate relationship our heavenly father wants with us. This is also from 1 Peter, this is 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Faith in Jesus is more than just intellectual assent and knowledge. Faith in Jesus is a love relationship that fills you with a kind of joy that's inexpressible. It's emotional. Relationships are emotional. You know this, but this one is especially emotional because it's just like the relationship between the son and the father. Three, this relationship, the intimacy we have with Christ is many things, but at minimum, at minimum, it's expressed in the way we follow in the way of Jesus. It's expressed in our obedience to his teaching, his words, and his ways. Our relationship with the son is expressed in the way we try and we fail and we get back on the horse again and we follow him. This is what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commands. You will follow me. You will kind of take me seriously and, and, and do what I suggest. That's the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. It's listening to him and doing what he says, not as a way of earning anything. The essence of following Jesus is not about the doing, it's trusting and believing and being confident in what's been done, but then on the other side of faith, pursuing Jesus and his ways. But like Jesus, who does the will of the Father, our objective as followers on the other side of a decision to trust him and call him Savior and Lord is to do life his way, to die to self and to live for him. 
And so the question I would ask you at the very end here is just simply this. Where are you with Jesus? Where are you at with him? If you don't follow him, what more could he possibly do to convince you and prove to you that he's good? Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our good shepherd. Thank you for laying down your life that we might live and we might respond to your invitation to begin this love relationship, this emotional up and down crazy path, but gratifying, purposeful relationship with you. Father God, I pray for those of us who have begun a relationship that today, that this would just be a reminder of what you offer and may we pick up our passion for you all over again today. But for those who may not have ever made a declaration of faith or chosen a moment to say, this is where I plant my flag in the Jesus camp, I pray God that maybe some would respond to you today. And so in these next few moments, have your way with us, call us to you, meet us where we're at as we come to you just as we are. In your name we pray these things. Amen. So here's the deal again, not to be manipulative. I'm going to sit down here. A couple of our prayer team members are going to be at the front. We're going to sing one more song together. And if you'd like to respond to the gospel of Jesus and make this your day, you just feel forward to come. If you want to come and pray about anything, you can certainly do that. But if, if this is uh, your time to respond, why don't you do that? So why don't you stand together? And let's sing together.